Church, Andover Campus, in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m. at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. Gracious and loving God, uh, open our hearts and minds to hear the word you would uh, speak to us today. Uh, set uh, the worries of our lives to the side for just this moment, Lord. Calm our hearts, calm our minds, and calm our spirits, that we might hear uh, your very voice. Transform us that we might be the stars that bear light to your coming kingdom. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Who likes to read? Okay. I love to read almost any genre. For most of my life, I would have told you I don't like science fiction, but Orson Scott Card has a series, uh, Ender's Game and Ender's Shadow, that's like 16 books, and I love those. I love fiction. I love nonfiction. I love poetry. I love Shakespeare and I are on rocky ground from high school, but I love reading uh, I uh, read every John Grisham book for years and years and years. I uh, read, like, I read the books that you had to read at school because I loved them so much. Um, my mother was an English teacher and wouldn't let us watch movies if they were based on the book until we had read the book. So uh, when Jurassic Park came out, I had to read Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton before I could go see it. Uh, in fourth grade, To Kill a Mockingbird came out on TV, and as an English teacher, my mother was very excited about seeing Gregory Peck uh, in this movie. So I obviously was excited because she was excited, and she would not let me watch it if I hadn't read the book. So in fourth grade, I'm lying in, my, in the bed with mom every night reading To Kill a Mockingbird, and she's having to explain this book to me. Reading is part of who we are. Uh, as I got older, I found a genre that I really love, and it's these historical books from the time of Vietnam and from the time of founding special forces. Uh, Vietnam books were, were special to me because it helped me understand my dad more. Uh, you know, a big part of who he is is Captain Donald S. Foster, USMC, right? He's a, a pilot who flew Vietnam. These books help me understand him. Uh, the Special Forces books just fascinated me about how uh, people could be both this mentally and physically brilliant. Uh, to read stories of Delta Force and how they uh, were formed into existence, to read the stories of the, the Navy SEALs, uh, just they captivated my attention. But none grabbed my attention more than the stories of Captain Richard Marchinko, any, all right, at least one person in here. First service, nobody had heard of him. Uh, he founded SEAL Team 6. If you, if you thought the SEALs were special forces, SEAL Team 6 is the special forces of special forces. These are the guys who can do just about anything counterterrorism. Uh, they, uh, he helped start it. He helped build up the training uh, and did this for a long time. Uh, in the Navy, at some point, though, you have to, like, be promoted. You can't just stay where you are. And so eventually they promote him to a new role. We want you to start what is called Red Cell. We want you to take the best of the best, the best from SEAL Team 6, the best you can find, and start a new unit. We want you to go uh, around the world, naval base by naval base, and test their preparedness. Are they vulnerable to attack? Can somebody get in here and destroy our base? And so they uh, would go to Subic Bay in the Philippines and check it out. They'd go to the uh, submarine base up in Connecticut and try to attack it. The problem was, though, that the, the higher-ups in the military would tell the base, 
hey, red cell's gonna come try to attack you sometime in the next two months. Uh, can you imagine what they would do if they knew this was coming? You get ready, right? Somebody told, okay, thank you. If, if, <laughs> I can imagine it. You tell me somebody's coming to attack me, I'm getting ready, right? And so this is what these bases would do. They'd raise their threat level to the highest possible. They'd double up on shifts. They'd have tons of people. And so when Red Cell would come, they would seem fairly prepared, right? They'd uh, be able to stop them or at least kind of have minimal damage. But finally, Marchenko said to the, the bosses, like, this is not an accurate representation of how ready these bases are. If they know we're coming, they're just going to get ready, and as soon as we leave, they're going to go back to whatever they were doing before. So you've got to stop telling them we're coming. Uh, they recognize that if you don't tell them you're coming, you now look like a real threat. You might get shot, you might get attacked, whatever. Uh, but they knew this was the only way to truly test the preparedness. And so they started going back to these bases. They went back to the Philippines and found that this place was not ready. It was a disaster. They got the bombs in there. They were able to kidnap whomever. Uh, they went back to the submarine base in Connecticut, got in, got all the plans for our nuclear subs, uh, captured or kidnapped the wife of the commandant or the commanding officer. Uh, they found that when you didn't warn people, they weren't ready. Over a number of years, this became a, a culture changer for the Navy, that uh, you had to always be ready to be attacked. And so instead of uh, getting ready because uh, you knew it was coming, you have to always be ready that someone might come uh, and try to harm you. Uh, this is a pretty big uh, difference in how you respond, right? Uh, I think we all kind of know what this is like in some ways. Whose house is always ready for company? All right, the, their son said it was, but they said it's not. <laughs> My house, we have to sweep up the goldfish six times a day. If you come up to our house and don't tell us you're coming, chances are we're hanging out on the porch. Uh, whose car is always immaculate and you can just take a crowd from work to lunch? Exactly. Again, goldfish in my car, we got to vacuum those things out. We've got a membership to the little drive through and vacuum your car out whenever you want to thing here in town. Uh, it's hard to be ready all the time for something unless that's just your nature or it's become who you are, right? I've been to some of your houses and I know that some of you actually uh, don't want to admit it, but your house is beautiful all the time. It is clean and picked up and pristine all the time. Mine is not. Uh, my friends, they've made a life decision around the desire to always have their house ready for coming. They have become minimalist. They have uh, far fewer things in their house to keep clutter. They know that if they have a lot of things, they're going to clutter up their house. Uh, they are always ready for company. I am not. Uh, the text today is asking us, are we a people who are always ready for Christ to come back, or are we not? Are we ready? Or are we not? He does it through uh, a couple kind of sets of imagery. The first is through recounting the story of Noah. Uh, showing this idea that in the time of Noah, Noah and his family listened to God and they were ready. When the floodwaters came, they were on the boat and things were good for them. But for those who just went on with their life as usual, which we know in, the, in that time they all did evil in the sight of their eyes, this is, this is what's happening. Those who weren't prepared were swept away in the floodwaters. The text then says that there's going to be, uh, it'll be just like that for the people in Jesus' day. There'll be people at the grindstone. Two, one will be swept away and one will remain. There'll be people out in the field. One will be swept away and one will remain. And then he talks about a thief in the night. 
If you knew when a thief was coming, wouldn't you stay up and watch for him? My family would. If, if my mother knew that someone was coming to rob our house, she would be up ready to go, right? Uh, she was terrified of people breaking into the house. So we were always prepared, though. We had the top-of-the-line security system with the motion detectors and the glass breaks and all this stuff. We had the mace and the panic button, and we had... But, but seriously, we had like the bags for if something happens, this is what you grab and go. We were ready all the time. Um, my family is not always ready, right? Like you, you have two choices. You can either be prepared or you cannot. You can be the people who trim your bushes so that people can't see, uh, so can't hide behind your bushes to get in your windows, right? Or you can let them grow up. You can be the people who clean out your mailbox, get neighbors to take your mail, or it overflows, right? You can get the boy down the street to mow your grass or you can let it go wild while you're on vacation. Uh, the text says, are you going to be a person who's prepared or a person who just kind of tries to do it uh, at the last moment, right? That's, that's really where it begins to get us is, are we a people who live on uh, kind of last-minute preparation, willpower, or are we a people who are truly transformed and waiting? Uh, I, I found the first set of images lacking. Elizabeth didn't read the next story, and I love this. Who then are the faithful and wise servants whom the master puts in charge of giving food at the right time to those who live in his house? Blessed are those servants whom the master finds fulfilling their responsibilities when he comes. I assure you that he will put them in charge of all his possessions. But suppose those bad servants should say to themselves, my master won't come till later. And suppose they begin to beat their fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunks. The master of those servants will come on a day when they're not expecting him at a time they couldn't predict. He will cut them in pieces and put them in a place with hypocrites. People there will be weeping and grinding their teeth. For some reason, this is an imagery I could, I could resonate with. Am I a servant who takes the, the request from my master seriously and recognizes that I might be serving forever? Or am I like these other servants who as soon as he leaves goes, oh, he won't be back till later. Let's have fun. Let's do whatever. I can, I can get things back together right before the master comes. All these uh, images that Christ uses as he's telling his disciples about what's to come give us a choice. Are we going to be a people who try at the last second to get ready, or are we going to be a people who are transformed, people who are always ready? I'd love to say that my house is transformed and it is always ready for company, but it is not. I'd love to say my car is clean and always ready for people to hop in, but it surely isn't. I do believe my discipleship is, discipleship is getting more and more uh, built on preparation, built on uh, always being ready. Most of my life, it was, uh, let's try to avoid hell, let's say the right prayer, let's do this thing, let me do what I need to do. Uh, the more I reflect on this text, the more I believe that what Christ is really asking is for us to be the servant and allow him to be the master. Last Sunday, we celebrated Christ the King, and we began to consider what it means to let Christ be Lord of our lives. This week I've been wondering, what might it be like to say, Christ, have your way in me and make me ready. Make me be the servant who serves you faithfully. Help me put away those things that uh, are my desires and give me your desires. Uh, I think I know all too often the church makes it about what we can do. But at, our, at its best, our theology is what God does in and through us. 
Uh, we don't have to get ourselves right. We don't have to do this. We don't have to do that. We have to simply say, God, have your way. God's grace is always moving before us, and God's grace is available to every one of us. God's grace will transform us and make us able to be a people who serve him well until the time comes when he comes again. Uh, it'd be really easy for me to preach this sermon today that says, you need to get your life together and be ready for Christ. Go home and do these things and get your mess together. And I think you might would go do it, right? I could guilt you enough to say that if you're not doing this thing, you, mm, you're not ready. You're going to be like those other servants. But it'd be artificial, right? It'd be like that base that knew they were coming. At some point, you would just have to let your guard down. I really think the sermon is have your way, God, and know that it's a process. We're in this year with Jesus for a whole year. I wonder what it would look like for us to come back a year from now and say, are we more like the servants who are prepared for Christ to come back? Are we more like the servants who are caring for what God has given us? When you leave, you're going to get a, a discipleship survey that asks you to take a snapshot of where you are in your discipleship journey right now. I'm going to ask you to seal it up in an envelope and give it to me, and I'm going to mail it to you a year from now. I'd love you to take it again in a year and say, what has God done in and through me in this year? You know, it, it'd be uh, easy for me to say, take it and let's have a meeting right now to see where you are so we can fix your discipleship, right? But I believe the more authentic way is for us to actually take the long view that Christ works uh, in and through his people. His spirit will be poured out on us and that grace works. And so we're gonna take a year to say, what does it mean to be servants who are waiting for our master? Servants who are caring for what he's given us. I love that that's the imagery. Who is... Will you be the servants that feed those in your care? Uh, the imagery isn't of uh, some grand power. It's of people being made low and serving their master. Uh, we, we believe that God can make us those servants and believe that he does it in the everyday, ordinary ways that his grace is poured out. Uh, I'm not going to try to do like a bamboozle service where I, let's pour out the grace on you and you're good to go. I'm going to ask you to, to do the everyday, ordinary means of grace that the church has throughout time recognized God moves in. I'm going to ask you to, to take seriously what it means to, to gather in corporate worship. That each week when we come, we encounter God's grace in the normal way he operates. I'm going to ask you to, to pray, to, to actually take seriously what it means to, to talk to God. Read, read scriptures. What does it mean to encounter God as God has revealed God's self? to fast. There's a number of us who are beginning to fast for the Methodist Church, a number of us who are uh, beginning to fast for those in our lives who, who don't actually know God yet. Um, and we're going to ask you to, to come to the Lord's table uh, on uh, special Sundays throughout the year, on um, these Sundays that we recognize as feast Sundays, we're going to come to the table because we believe that in this everyday, ordinary bread and cup, God's grace is poured out. We believe that uh, at this table, we are transformed just a little bit. And I ask you to keep coming back. Come back to this table. Come back to worship. Come back to scriptures. Come back to prayer. And come back to fasting. And let's see what might happen in this next year. What might God do in and through you? And what might God do in and through us? That we might be that shining star that the choir sung about. A, a, a very physical star bore witness to the first coming of Christ. Might we be those bright lights set on a hill that bear witness to Christ coming again 
And might we do it as people prepared by God's grace? Not because we're scared, not because we're trying to get ready, because we love our God and King.